0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola,
1: and I'm Rania Kalick.
0: and we didn't plan that. So that's why there was that awkward pause, but we'll leave it in there <laughs> because I think it'll help you like us because you can see
1: yeah, yeah uh, awkwardness is attractive.
0: <laughs> you can see that uh, we're just learning how to do this, but this is our second video broadcast And for this week's show, we are going to be making this available to patrons only, and then we'll pick maybe our favorite five or 10 minutes, pull it out, share it on YouTube and give everyone a a chance to hear from us. And for this episode, we're going to talk about the democratic establishment and how they all coalesced around Joe Biden this past week. And we'll highlight some of our thoughts about the super Tuesday results. Uh, We're going to talk about the war in Idlib and what is happening. Rania did a message or she did a a video for Soapbox about this. So uh, we'll hear from Rania about this. And then we'll start this episode discussing the spread of the coronavirus and how it's intensified throughout the world and become a much, much more uh, scary outbreak, I suppose, than we thought a month or a month and a half ago. Yeah. As
1: I predicted and warned, and nobody listened to me, I've like so, I've, like, I've uh, designated myself like an infectious disease expert because I'm such a hypochondriac, and all I do now is read about coronavirus. It's basically like I went to college for this point.
0: <laughs> and that's what I was going to ask because I wanted to know if you know a, a lot of this had anything to do with you. Uh, being concerned about germs and the spread of germs and, and hygiene and, and things like that. Is is that like why you're drawn to this well, actually, coronavirus?
1: I mean, I mean, well, I, it was more like as soon as it started, as soon as it started to be reported in China, like that China had this outbreak, I was like, I'm, I'm aware that a lot of times they overhype it in the media. They do this kind of like every time there's a new flu strain. Um, but I went out and bought masks, and I just kind of watched it slowly happen. I was just thinking, oh my god, if this gets out of China and ends up in the U.S., I mean, other parts of the world that don't have good health infrastructure, we're going to be screwed. And so I just, I've been freaking out about it since. I mean, freaking out about it to a fair degree. I'm not like, I'm not like not leaving the house, but just like obsessively reading about it and watching the number of infected go higher. And I mean, I think what's interesting about what's happening now, if we just want to jump right into the coronavirus issue, sure um is with the u.s i think the u.s is woefully unprepared they're not taking it seriously i think the u.s now has 300 confirmed cases but the u.s is also under testing people my brother-in-law's an er doctor and for the past several weeks um first of all the cdc is the one that tests not the hospitals and not the er doctor not the doctors but like the people had to meet certain criteria to test them so there was people they were sending home who had symptoms but they you know, one of the criteria was you had to have traveled to a certain place and just returned, or you had to be admitted to the hospital. So if you're coming in with symptoms that aren't severe enough to admit you to the hospital, or if you haven't recently returned from Italy or China or South Korea, you know, or one of these hot spots where they have a high number of infected cases, uh, they're not testing you. And so that's why weeks went by and the U.S. just kind of ignored it. And more and more people got sick. And it was like a community to community transmission thing where it was like just spreading. It's been spreading in the U.S. for like a month and a half. The U.S. has known about this for a couple of months now. Nothing shut down anywhere, um, only in like specific areas of the country. I think they might have shut down schools or leaving it to local officials to decide. But like at this point in China, when they had, you know, hundreds of people infected and people started dying, They were shutting everything down, like, completely. They were quarantining entire cities. I mean, you saw, like, we saw a video of, like, people in, you know, the, I don't know what you call them, like, biohazard suits, those white suits, like, having checkpoints and stopping people to check their fever. Like, you don't see any of that in the U.S. Um, So, and I just actually wanted to read, you know, this Atlantic piece just came out yesterday about how um, they, like, The Atlantic could only verify that, they checked all across the country, they could only verify that 1,895 people had been tested for the coronavirus in the U.S. and about 10% of them had tested positive. Okay, in a country of 350 million where this disease has been spreading for the past month, there's definitely more people than 2,000 who have it. Um, And that's because they just, and you know, just to compare in South Korea, more than 66,000 people were tested within a week of its first case of community transmission. And it quickly became able to test 10,000 people a day. The United Kingdom, which has only 115 positive cases, has so far tested over 18,000 people for the virus. So compare that to the US, which is a much bigger country, has a much larger population. Um, And I mean, this is like a recipe for disaster. And like, look, most people our age will be fine. Most people who get it will be fine. But the mortality rate is higher than the flu. And it's really high among older people. Um, so I was—I mean, today this is a little bit funny in a way, but also messed up. Like the people who work in the Capitol, are members of Congress, are getting really scared because the Capitol—like—is it still allowing anybody to come visit the Capitol? You know, they're not screening anybody for anything. And so they're all freaked out because there doesn't seem to be any sort of procedure in place to prevent this virus from ending up in the Capitol where you have lawmakers. And lawmakers are worried because they happen to be in the age group, most of them, of those who are most at risk of dying from this, which are people in their 70s um, and people who have underlying illnesses. So it's just this is what's so baffling to me is like you're talking about even elites like don't seem... They're just starting now to care, but like, I think it speaks to a lot of things. I think it speaks to the fact that the, it's not just because Trump is president, by the way. Democrats are, of course, trying to make it like, oh, Trump is president. And yeah, he's insane. I mean, I think he actually is convinced that like Democrats created this just to hurt him. But I think that for the past couple of decades, the U.S. has like disinvested so much in its own government and its own infrastructure that it's really in this kind of situation when you need a strong government it's really left it up to private industry to figure out how to deal with it so you've got companies like microsoft and lockheed martin and a lot of uh, silicon valley companies like implementing their own policies because it's in the west coast this virus it's affecting san francisco where a lot of Silicon kind and it's affecting a lot of them have companies in, in washington it's affecting that area as well a lot of like some of their employees have gotten sick so they're implementing their own policies about what their employees should do as opposed to having a government that comes in and tells you what to do. Like I think that that's like the real disconnect in the U.S. This is what happens after decades of saying government is bad is when you need a strong government to deal with this it's not there. <laughs> like it's mm-hmm. not that I think that that demonstrates to you the difference between like a country like China and a country like the U.S. is yeah China's authoritarian whatever but they have a, a really strong government. And so when a situation like this happens, they're able to contain it. The US isn't even trying to contain it. Um, so I think it's going to be a real disaster in the US. I'm not worried about my parents. They're older. Um, and I also live in a country like I live in Lebanon, which the infrastructure here is not good. The coronavirus is here. They're starting to shut everything down. They're even like shutting down nightclubs. And um, this is I an mean, economic collapse in Lebanon that they're doing this. So Lebanon's hospitals are already a little bit short on supplies. Um, But even they're shutting things down it's a third world country so I'm just like what is wrong with America and what it comes down to is what I just explained and I also think it's kind of like putting profits before people too where you're going to have a lot of um, like a lot of different if you're letting companies lead the way they're going to care about their profits more than protecting the country from a pandemic so they're going to wait to the last minute to tell their employees to stop coming to work you know what I mean Mm-hmm. U.S. is going to wait till the last minute to do anything that impacts Wall Street or impacts the economy. Um, so, anyways, I think I'm. Like, I I I see this is like I think the coronavirus is not being taken seriously. And again, I don't necessarily think it's because oh my god, there's going to be dead bodies everywhere. It seems like you know not every. It's most people will not die from this, but it's going to really. It's going to be really destructive for the economy. And I mean, I think a lot of older people are going to die, and it's going to be really scandalous how it happens. And You know, all you hear from U.S. officials while this is taking place is they're still blaming China for it, even though what China did actually helped um, her, like, actually gave time to the rest of the world to prepare for it, is what the World Mm. World Health Organization is saying. Um, And then, you know, we can, I also think it's important to point out what you were mentioning before we started recording, is that with respect to the coronavirus, um, there's also something to be said about U.S. sanctions uh, and certain U.S. foreign policy and how that's impacted the ability of certain countries to deal with it, particularly Iran, which has been hit by this so hard. Um, it's been extremely, it's been deadlier in Iran than than other places, uh, and their health infrastructure has been dramatically uh, damaged by U.S. sanctions, which don't specifically target medicines or hospital supplies or things like that, but that's the, that's the result of U.S. sanctions. They say, oh, it's not against, you know, it's not humanitarian uh, aid or medicines that, that, that we're, we're preventing from going in, but ultimately that's what U.S. sanctions do, and they know that because U.S. sanctions make it so that banks around the world don't want to deal with the country that's sanctioned, so it makes it more difficult for the country to buy the things that they need. Um, so Iran has been having, you know, medicine shortages. Uh, as a result of U.S. sanctions, and Iran health sector has been has been hit pretty hard. And you had the US, I think last week, uh, finally, like like I think they, I'm not exactly sure, I have to go back and look at the specifics, but they basically uh, like decreased sanctions temporarily to allow for coronavirus kits to make their way to Iran because it was impeding Iran's ability to purchase coronavirus kits in a country that's been really hard hit by this. And there's also something to be said about the Middle East in general and what U.S. foreign policy has done here, one country after another, state collapse, destruction of the government, whether it's Syria or Libya or Yemen. Um, and these sorts of policies and the devastation they've wrought has made it so that in a situation where you have a health emergency, like with coronavirus, you don't have a state that's able to come in and deal with it properly. You have very poor health, constru- health infrastructure as well as as well as like a lack of any sort of state mechanisms to deal with it. That's what the situation in Iraq is going to be really bad. Um, I can't even imagine in Yemen. I mean, Yemen, you've got like famine. The U.S. and Saudi Arabia destroyed that country. Um, So I don't know how they're going to, you know, be able to deal with the impact of this. Uh, Syria, I'm sure it's reached Syria, but so far we haven't really, you know, heard about any numbers of people infected. But Syria is under extreme sanction by the U.S. Um, And that's after a decade of, you know, U.S., trying to regime change the government and weakening it tremendously. So I don't know how it's going to play out in Syria either, but it's not going to be pretty.
0: And do we know, uh, as far as the global south, do we know if it's made it to either South America or I guess the African continent? Are we hearing anything in the media, or is it just not making it that way yet?
1: Well, so far, I think there's been a couple cases confirmed in Nigeria, but it hasn't Uh. really made it. It's just now sort of like making its way to Africa. But I actually read that even if the African continent doesn't have outbreaks of this virus, they're still um, set to lose like four billion dollars economically uh, because of the, because of the the way that this is ruining the economy globally. Uh, then I don't I haven't seen I think there was maybe one Latin American country it was Brazil I think there was a couple of cases in Brazil, but of course yeah you have to think about what's the impact going to be when it reaches Venezuela, you know forty thousand people died in. I, in like a year or two years, according to the Center for Economic Research, uh, in Venezuela, as a result of U.S. sanctions, largely due to the fact that U.S. sanctions prevented life-saving medicines like medicines for HIV from getting into the country. So you can imagine how this is going to impact Venezuela if it's already impacting the health sector to, health sector to such a dramatic degree. Um, and then you have, you know, countries like Honduras and uh You know, El Salvador and a lot of the, you know, Guatemala countries where people are fleeing largely as a result of the consequences of U.S. policies in those countries. Um, I am adding a pandemic into that only makes things worse. It's like, you know, it's just it's a recipe for disaster. And again, like I don't think any of I'm actually surprised with how how like the lack of seriousness is getting in the media, because usually when there's fears about a virus or about like a new virus or even a new flu strain, they play it up really big. With coronavirus, they've been kind of doing the opposite, I feel like. They've been giving it, a it's oversaturated with coverage. But for the U.S., they've kind of been playing it down. Um, and I'm not quite well, sure why.
0: Well, well Rania, uh, you do know that uh, Hillary had this big documentary that debuted on, on on Hulu. And she's talking about her husband's infidelities. And so we have to to give that priority we have to give that priority over this massive outbreak that is going to kill potentially hundreds of thousands of people so this is this is where the media
1: if you have a two if you have a two it's crazy like if you have a three uh uh, like over three percent mortality rate which might be um which might be an overestimate because you know they don't actually know how many people are infected so it could be much lower than that but regardless we know people are dying from this. You're there. The estimation, like even one percent of the population, is a lot of fucking people. In the U.S., that's yeah. like three and a half, half million people. Yeah, if my math is so, correct, and my, my math might not be correct there, but it's it's either way, like it's not good. It's not good.
0: Yeah. So I'll share that. Of course, everyone who is listening to the show and people who aren't listening know that I was in London to cover Julian Assange's extradition proceedings. And it was something to sit there and see the spread and get closer and closer to Europe and know that it was, you know, it was in Italy. And then there were the first cases being reported in the United Kingdom, I believe, while I was there. And, and on one hand, I it, it was impressive because you could see that the UK is really well equipped to manage this kind of outbreak. The people who were on their state news service, BBC, were very calm about this and, I kind of trusted what they were saying and how they weren't trying to get people to panic about it. Uh, they did. They, they said a lot, um, answered a lot of questions Like people are getting. You know, like we've heard ridiculous questions like, can you get coronavirus from Chinese food? And on one hand, that's like <laughs> hilarious. That's like hilarious on one hand because it's stupid, but it's also like people, you know, just there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I think that just shows you like the extent to which there are things out there on the internet or wherever you might be getting your information that that tell you things about how you can get coronavirus that are just, aren't true. And we've also had hoaxes about like how you could cure coronavirus that are just not true. The big thing has been that silver liquid that you could like drink that uh, apparently there's now a ban against selling that product. Uh, but I was in, I was in London and when I came back from London, my flight Ryanair was entirely empty. Um, and that just showed you really? that was like, yeah, it was entirely empty. I, I mean, I, I'm not paying up for my seat. I sat in a basic economy seat, and I had full reign to sit wherever I wanted to in the cabin, which never happens because there were maybe um, like ten or twenty percent of the seats were filled for this flight, uh, and it was taking place on a Wednesday in the middle no. of a in the middle of a business week. Um, at it was a noon flight. It was a pretty good flight in terms of like, being able to travel from the UK and get back home in the United States at a decent time. It wasn't a red-eye tra- uh, flight. And so it was mostly empty and And the attendant, the, the flight attendant on board told one of the passengers that most of these businesses have canceled international travel and they're just yeah. not having their workers go around and do, you know, Which whatever smart, they would they normally- Which is have
1: to, they yeah. have to. Yeah.
0: Uh, so, so that's that's a big deal. I mean, they just canceled uh, SXSW in Austin, Texas, because they didn't want the coronavirus to spread further and and infect did people you, who were.
1: Did you hear what happened at APAC? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like a couple people who were at the APAC convention uh got infected with coronavirus. Um, you know, Kevin, about that what you mentioned about your flight being empty, I'm pretty I I think that this has actually impacted the travel industry, the airline industry, more than 9-11 did. Hmm. I, I mean, because I it's believe like, that. it's like crazy. I mean, people but people are right not to be traveling abroad right now because you that's how it's spread. I mean, this is this is I think this demonstrates like if this, imagine if this happened with an, with a more dangerous virus, which is like, it yeah. could happen. It could happen. It's scary. I don't mean to like fear monger. It's just, it just demonstrates that we don't have the proper mechanisms in place that we need, that we need when in, a, in a, such a globalized world uh, yeah. to, to minimize the impact of this kind of stuff.
0: And the other thing I want to say before we move on is just that there is a whistleblower story connected to this that did get a lot of attention. And since it's something that I cover quite regularly, I just wanted to acknowledge it and say that uh, in the Health and Human Services, there were workers who complained, who said they weren't protected and were exposed to people evacuated from China who they were dealing with. And the Trump administration has uh, basically retaliated and tried to silence these employees who want to discuss Uh, the lack of preparation, the lack of seriousness on the part of the Trump administration to deal and and manage with these people who were being evacuated. Uh, The other thing is I don't have the name, unfortunately, which maybe that should lead me to just be quiet and move on. But it seems like a salient example. There was a reporter who just came back from Italy, and she said she visited the epicenter of where a lot of this outbreak was in Italy. And when she came through a Homeland Security checkpoint in, in the United States, she was just asked, where were you? And she said, Italy. And the guy just stamped her passport and let her move right on through. And there were no questions or anything about where she was traveling, no effort to try to make sure this was contained. I mean, you, and, and I think that like one mistake we're not gonna make, cause we're not racists, but one mistake mm-hmm. that I think a lot of, pe- of people are making Is thinking that it only is coming from chinese people at this point that like chinese people are the only people that would be spreading the outbreak Uh, and that's simply not true and then also one thing i had to overcome just to acknowledge the prejudices that get planted in your minds from media one thing i had to overcome is the year after year of stereotyping when you do coverage of these pandemics, and what you see is the image of an Asian with that with the mask over their face,
1: mm-hmm. yeah,
0: and and you immediately yeah. think that with the mask over their face they're infected, but actually those people are probably protecting themselves from being infected, and that's why they have the mask on their face. So they're not wearing the mask because they necessarily are infected with a disease. They wouldn't probably be traveling if they had a disease, but they're trying to culturally prevent themselves from getting the disease. And they're doing what most Americans won't do because they're, I mean, there maybe there are more than ever because we're all sensitive to this outbreak. But, but historically, when we've had these outbreaks, you don't just see many, many Americans walking around the streets in masks. That's something that seems to happen in these massively populated Asian countries.
1: Well, so to be clear, by the way, um, I mean, I know people aren't stupid, but wash your hands a lot bring antibacterial with you everywhere and put on your hands all the time. Don't touch your face. Like just try not to touch your face. It's hard. No, it's really hard not to touch your face. It's touching really not an easy thing really to do. Really
0: it's really bad to touch your eyes. No, it's, it's terrible. Touching your eyes. Eyes,
1: touching, your, touching your eyes in your mouth. But like just, you no, know, it's actually, when you actually pay attention, you do it a lot without even realizing it. Yeah. Um, so just like really try not to touch your face. Wear a scarf if you have to, to stop yourself from touching your face. Um, really make an effort. And Uh, The other thing about the face masks is they're actually not really useful for preventing um, Mm -hmm. yourself from getting it uh, because it's not like an airborne disease. It's more about like don't let people sneeze on you or cough on you. But the masks really are more for protecting other people from you if you're sick. But people don't realize that. So they just wear them in general. But actually wearing Mm -hmm. a mask might make you more likely to infect yourself because you're constantly adjusting it, which means touching your face. Uh, so keep, you know, but keep that in mind because there was like all these people buying up these masks and it's like, okay, there's really, the mask is really more, if you're like a healthcare professional and you're dealing with people who might be infected like all the time at close range, or if you're somebody who you're coughing and you're like, okay, I'm sick. I don't want to get other people sick. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a face mask on. But anyways, I think this is only going to get worse, uh, for the next month or so. as time goes on. So I'm sure we can talk more about it then, but also the other thing in the u.s is like people i don't know how it's going to be for people staying home from work you know there's this culture in the u.s where like even if you have sick days you shouldn't take them <laughs> like like you know it really is there's this culture in the u.s like if you take a sick day you're weak and you're looked down upon that really is so even people who have benefits are discouraged from taking sick days um mm. dude don't be like that don't put your workplace like i never understood that by the way like i never understood you know I obviously like we're a little bit different cause we have different sorts of jobs. We don't go to an office from nine to five, but like I have family and friends who do. And I've always been amazed by that. Like a friend, you know, a family member or a friend being like coughing or having a fever, but being like, well, I'm not dead. So I have to go to work. And I'm like, but aren't you just gonna get your whole office sick? Like, like why would they even want you at work? But it's just the culture. The culture is like, you have to go to work and that's mm-hmm. for people with benefits. So imagine like the people who deal with food, you know, imagine you're, uh, imagine like people at jobs that like manufacture things, like who don't get the day, like who don't have sick time. Imagine people at Amazon who package things, go yeah, all around the yeah. country, don't even get key break, let alone like
0: Jeff, Jeff Bezos wage slave army who are yeah. just afraid to miss a shift because they won't be able to clock in again for a while. You know, you, you don't want to end up out of the cycle because then you're no longer getting a paycheck. So,
1: Exactly. Um, That's usually how it works. So, I think the lack of a social safety net in the US and the lack of like developed country labor standards and like labor rights is also going to contribute to the spread of coronavirus in the US.
0: Okay, so let's go on to, uh, uh, we wanted to talk about Syria before we conclude with Democrats. So, uh, and this was—I mean—I wanted to have you talk. So how about I uh, hilariously create bloopers and fumble down here? I was gonna like see if I can focus on just uh, you. There you go. Ah, All right.
1: Look at take, that.
0: take take us away on Syria.
1: Um, okay, so I'll give like a brief overview. I'm sure people have seen that Idlib is in the news. It hasn't been getting that much attention because of the U.S. elections, but Idlib is in northern Syria. Um, it's an area where the what they call the Syrian opposition is still in charge. That being the you know a collection of jihadist groups affiliated with Al Qaeda or Al Qaeda's former affiliate um, that gets get called rebel in the news media. Um, and Turkey is also involved. Turkey also has soldiers in Idlib uh, that kind of work alongside these these extremists. Um, and Turkey has of course like a history of funding and arming them and kind of letting them go into Syria through the Idlib Turkish border. Uh, so, so Turkey played a big role in the rise of these groups. Anyways, uh, so then you've got the Syrian government, which has taken back a lot of its territory from insurgents groups. Idlib is the only place left. Um, Idlib. Brett McGurk, the former U.S. envoy to the U.S. or the coalition to defeat ISIS, uh, actually called Idlib Al Qaeda's greatest, largest safe haven since 9/11. Uh, which gets left out of a lot of news stories. So basically the reason I mentioned that is to, to mention that, you know, Idlib is a place full of hardened jihadist extremists who are doing the fighting. Um, and as a result, the whole world is invested in what happens in Idlib. The Syrian government ultimately wants to take Idlib back because it wants to take it back to all its territory, and its Russian backers will ha- want to help them do that. But the issue with Idlib is if the Syrian government does take Idlib back, the West is scared that all of these, extremists will then end up in Turkey and then end up leaking into the whole world. So it presents like a, so they feel it presents a, a security threat for the whole world, which they might be a little bit right about that. But of course, the Syrian government has every right to take back um, its territory, like any government would. So this has been the ongoing issue at Idlib since it was taken over by the Syrian opposition in 2011. Um, it was one of the first places that became armed in the Syrian uprising. Was in Idlib, like a couple months into the uprising, and they actually killed a bunch of Syrian uh, soldiers, like 120. There was a huge massacre there. Uh, I think it was in July 2011. So that was the peaceful uprising that everybody calls peaceful. But anyways, uh, Idlib was taken over a long time ago, and it's it. And as the Syrian government took back other areas of the country, like East Aleppo, like East um, Huta, um, and other places in the south, they would make these uh, agreement. They would do these like reconciliation agreements with fighters. Like, if you want to stay, just give up your weapons and we'll like accept you back into society. If you want to keep fighting, you can keep your weapons and you can go to Idlib. So that's been what they've done all this time. And now, with Idlib being the only place left, it's like this final showdown. And so, Turkey and Russia have been involved in um, negotiating because Russia kind of negotiates on behalf of the Syrian government and internationally. So, Russia and Turkey, which are on opposite sides here, right? Turkey's on the side of the extremists, Russia's on the side of the Syrian government. Negotiate, came up with an agreement over Idlib uh, for a ceasefire that would like allow Idlib to just kind of keep existing, but Turkey would have to basically remove heavy weapons from the uh, armed groups uh, and create like a demilitarized zone um, and open up these strategic highways for civilian passage so that Aleppo wouldn't be cut off from the rest of the country. Basically, Turkey agreed to do all these things that it never did. And this was two years ago. So the ceasefire keeps being broken, the insurgents attack government areas, the government hits back. And so Idlib is always unstable, this is always ongoing. The Russians and Syrians just got impatient. And Uh so they started a campaign in January to uh, take back parts of Idlib. And that's what led to this recent escalation is because they were doing this campaign to take back parts of of Idlib and they were actually succeeding. And Turkey was involved, you know, had some of its has its soldiers on the ground at observation posts, uh, fighting in some cases alongside these extremist groups, and like 33 or 43 Turkish soldiers uh, got hit in this escalation and died a couple weeks ago. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so this this so Turkey like went nuts, and then escalated even more and started like bombing the crap out of uh, Syrian uh, Syrian army posts and killing a lot of Syrian soldiers and destroying their equipment. and so that's why Idlib was in the news, because of this fight that was happening. And then at the same time, Turkey's getting pissed off because Turkey's a NATO member, who's, by the way, fighting alongside al-Qaeda, but Turkey's a NATO member. And one of the reasons Turkey is so desperate to keep Idlib in the hands of these extremists uh, is because Turkey doesn't want more Syrian refugees to come into its country, and a campaign to take that Idlib would send waves of, of Syrians fleeing into Turkey to, to flee the fighting. Uh, and as well as waves of probably jihadist groups as well coming into Turkey, a, a problem that Turkey created. So Turkey's getting pissed off because like the West doesn't seem to really care that much. So they're threatening Europe with releasing more, Syri- letting more Syrian refugees go to Europe. So that's why you see Syrian refugees going to Greece, not just Syrian, also Afghans and others that are in Turkey. Uh, they let them basically. Turkey's been blocking them from going to Europe, um, but they're just like we're just going to let them flood into Europe since you guys aren't doing anything about this. And so that's why you see the situation that's dangerous as well, which is like Greek uh, police shooting at Syrian refugees. So it's a whole yeah. mess, a whole mess. But the point is, is, I hope I'm explaining this right. I know it's a little confusing. It's not an easy situation no, to understand. Good. But uh, what should be understood now is that there's been another ceasefire put into place uh, between the Russians and the Turks. Uh, so now things have calmed down a bit. Uh, but we'll see how long that lasts. It probably won't last long. So it lives going to be an issue eventually because it can't just be in the hands of extremists forever. And again, it's really important to emphasize this is a problem that really is the fault of Turkey, the Gulf states, the U.S., all the countries that armed and funded these crazy groups of extremists to try and overthrow the Syrian government created the situation on the ground today. So even if he yes, it's true, the Syrians and the Russians are like, really brutally bombing Idlib. That is true. Um, It's not something we should be okay with. Uh, No, you know, I don't ever want to see people, you know, civilians getting bombed. But at the same time, like, we have to remember who caused this problem and created it. And this is why you don't escalate wars. And this is why you don't try to regime change countries because this is what happens.
0: And quickly, doesn't this go to the issue that we heard John Kerry speak about, that we heard Joe Biden allude to, Excuse me, which is that you have this extremist group there that can create pressure on the Syrian government and they they want the Syrian government to remain weak and entangled. And so isn't that part of, am I getting this right, that that's like part of why they have allowed Idlib to be there for so long is because they have this interest in seeing the government Remain enmeshed with fighting these forces.
1: Yeah, they don't mind Idlib continuing to be like that pressure point for the government, but they've also they've also stopped uh, supporting the groups. Like it's kind of just Turkey now uh, hmm. doing it. Uh, the U.S. isn't arming and funding them anymore. Um, they're funding some of the propaganda around it, but they're not arming and funding the the extremist groups anymore. They've kind of given up on that project. Uh, what the US is a bit more concerned about now is they created this problem in Idlib of all these extremists. And they wanted to, that one of the reasons they want Idlib to stay the way it is, is because they want these extremists to remain contained in Idlib. They want Idlib to be like, whoa, <laughs> they want Idlib to be like a prison uh, for these extremists so that they don't leak out into the rest of the world. Let them die there, right? So that's their big fear now is that these, because ex- the U.S. created a security crisis for itself by allowing al-Qaeda to grow in Idlib. They, they encouraged it. Um, and al Qaeda's at the end of the day, these groups do present a threat to the West. <laughs> like, let's not forget 9-11, right? So that's their issue now is they want it to, but it's, they want it to be contained in Idlib. That said, it's not fair to the Syrians for them to have to be the ones to contain extremist groups like this on their territory that are constantly uh, launching attacks against their against their areas—that's what's happening. So it's like it's like an unfair demand and expectation of the West after creating this problem to just you know insist that Syria be the one to 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 just deal with the you know the negative of it for for you know indefinitely. Um, you can't expect the Syrians to do that. No, no government would, no government would be okay with, you know, extremists shelling their their civilians um, every yeah. few weeks, indefinitely.
0: Absolutely. All right, so uh, we wanted to talk about the Democrats, but let me just uh, take a moment and uh, just say that here at Unauthorized Disclosure, we have these, <laughs> uh, we have these bags. I don't know if I'm here, actually, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take center stage here. So we have these bags <laughs> And uh, we, we made these like over a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago. Maybe
1: like two years ago, maybe.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've had these for a while. Uh, and that's both a negative thing for us, but also we, we got quite a few of these. I'd say the people who deserve to receive these who were patrons, we probably went out. And if we're being honest, I bet 40 to 50% of people who deserve to get these got them. Uh, the other half, I'm tremendously sorry we never came through. It's just uh, being a small operation. Uh, we are not a professional fulfillment house, so I had difficulty uh, get and and it's hard to send these to people who are not in the United States because that requires a lot of extra work. Uh, but I guess it. I mean, it's not to say it can't be done. It just requires a lot of extra effort that cuts into focusing on the show and and other. Uh, journalism that we are doing regularly on our end so that's to say that if you're a patron and you would like to get a a bag and you did not receive one uh please send your address to us on patreon.com you can message the show uh give us your address and uh we'll send it i mean again like if you don't wanna send us our address because you don't trust us for any reason, and <laughs> don't send us your address. But we're only gonna use it to send you a bag. It's not going to be given to any other group. We're or gonna show and
1: Kevin are gonna show up. We're gonna show up at your house, like insisting that you let us stay the night there. It's gonna become like couch surfers on the couches of all the different listeners who gave us their addresses. <laughs> but I did I did want
0: to use the video broadcast to come clean about that and just clarify. I mean, maybe some people had questions about why they never got their bag, and, oh, I sent you my address and you never sent me a bag. Uh, we can we can clear that all up, and we're very glad that you're still a patron, even though you know we we maybe didn't like get Send you. One, <laughs> the, 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 we never sent you the perk that was promised for being a a patron. So on uh, off, honestly. so, so anyways, uh, On to our last subject matter, which uh, was the Super Tuesday results, and then more importantly, I think, the fact that we saw the Democratic Party and its establishment forces unite around Joe Biden and uh, really, really coalesce around him.
1: Yeah, it was, it, was a, it was like their last effort, and it worked. I mean, it worked in the sense of blunting Sanders. We had Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar not dropped out when they did, I think we would have seen much different results. I also think we would have seen much different results had Elizabeth Warren dropped out before Super Tuesday. Um, but I was really disappointed. I mean, I woke up because like I'm seven hours ahead of Eastern time, so I can't stay up all night to watch the results. So I got up the next morning and I was just like, holy crap, Biden, Like not only did he sweep the South, which everybody expected, because... The Democratic machine is really strong in the South when it comes to primaries. Uh, so the establishment candidate almost always wins there. But he swept some Northern countries that he shouldn't have. Um, and that was really concerning to see. At the end of the day, once the California results come in, I think uh, Biden and Sanders will be closer in their delegate count. But Biden went from being a candidate. I mean, I really didn't expect it to be Biden that they were going to coalesce around. I really did not. He was doing so poorly in the polls. Um, and Sanders was just gaining and gaining and gaining. And then they pulled out this like, last stop Hail Mary effort. And they did a really good job of organizing around Biden like two days before. And on top of that, because Joe Biden won South Carolina, they turned that into this like big comeback victory for him in the media. They gave him like $70 million of free positive advertising for Joe Biden in the media by just mm-hmm. covering it like the new frontrunner, And I think that helped him a lot. Um, So I was really disappointed to see that. I think maybe the Sanders side, or at least Sanders supporters like like us, have maybe overestimated um, just how much Sanders would be able to override the Democratic establishment uh, in the primary and reach the entire electorate. Because I think at the end of the day, sometimes because we spend so much time watching the day-to-day horse race of this, we forget that other people don't. You know, other people aren't on Twitter all day. Other people aren't reading the news every time a story comes out. Other people aren't watching the programming that we watch. Other people aren't necessarily seeing Sanders ads. Other people, most people, I think the average person gets a lot of their news from watching a little CNN here and there, maybe, and their local news in the evening. And uh-huh. the, you know, the other way they're reached is by canvassers who come and explain to them, hey, I'm you know I'm supporting, the, like, like we're Bernie Sanders. Canvassers, we want to tell you the policies he supports, and figure out who you're going to vote for and why, and maybe try to convince you to vote for him. But not, you know, there's even if you have a whole army of people doing that, you can't reach every door, you know. So, I think the Democratic machine, even though there's this what like the swell of progressive sentiment and this swelling progressive base in the Democratic Party, I think that we maybe underestimated just how strong and powerful the Democratic establishment is and still is to, to the point where, you know, I also think Kevin, like we know Joe Biden has like dementia and it's getting really bad. We're watching it play out, but I don't think the news is covering it. Like I, MSNBC and CNN aren't covering Joe Biden like that. They're not show, people, people aren't watching the debates. Not everybody's watching the debate. They have no idea. I think a lot of people have no idea that Joe Biden cannot form a coherent sentence right now.
0: And the other thing they're doing is they're trying to make discussing his health. Uh, well, so I'll put this in two ways if, if you let me do this. So they're trying to make it a conservative attack to talk about his health when, in fact, uh, it, it's not a partisan issue. Anybody can see the decline. And most average voters are going they're going to be able to access clips of Joe Biden from five and 10 years ago and be able to see a market difference between the way he was talking then versus now and see that there's something up. Uh, I think liberal audiences were introduced to the fact that there is something going on this past week because Rachel Maddow couldn't even get him to come on her show to do a one-on-one interview. And so all we got was, uh, you know, without getting into her, because I really don't want to waste my time on her too much, but... But we all we got was the Elizabeth Warren interview and then we got a Bernie Sanders interview. But Elizabeth Warren had dropped out and that should have been an interview with Joe Biden. So I think that MSNBC was making up for not getting Joe Biden to be on their program. And uh, you know, the other thing is that there's been this double standard about the medical health records, truly. because. They say that Bernie Sanders should keep releasing all of these other documents that aren't necessary to prove the heart attack. Uh, We've seen that used. Democratic majority for Israel used the heart attack against him to try and suppress his support in Iowa. Uh, We know uh, that they may have aired a similar ad in Nevada in order to try to suppress the vote in that state. It didn't work, but they've been willing to use his heart attack against him and yet, for some reason, it's not equally OK and permissible to talk about Biden's cognitive decline.
1: What they're doing to Biden is like elder abuse. The fact that yeah. they're pushing him to run like this, it's like you, you're watching this man on a national stage experience severe cognitive impairment. And it's actually sad to watch. As much as I hate Joe Biden's politics, I don't want to see an old man like like slowly lose his mind on the on a national state. It's it's awful. I can't believe his wife is okay with him going through like deal, doing this. I can't believe the party's putting him forward like this. Like there's no put put him in Trump in a debate and see who wins. Trump and he knows great.
0: it too. He knows it too. We saw a headline that he apparently has told his advisors he would only want to be president for one term. That he's mm-hmm. he even recognizes his limits. And so and and so I, I agree with you that I feel a disgust not gonna for, be. I feel a disgust for the people around him who are enabling this, what you call abuse. Simone Sanders, um, any of these sur- surrogates, Bakari Sellers who goes on and sells him as like the best candidate of black people. Um, any one of these people who go out and, and argue in favor ha- of him without addressing these issues that are clear and apparent. I mean, we saw them in the first debate most clearly when he stepped out,
1: three o three three o. What is it he said? Like, yeah.
0: well, I don't know if that was the first. Rio. I don't know if that was the first one, but that intensity when he stepped out, that first debate that really landed with a thud with us back in 2019, when we were we were led to believe this was going to be the front runner, and then he stepped out and he was just manic and uncontrolled, uh, and it, it looked clear that there was something going on that had to be. Uh, that we had to care about if we were going to take this primary seriously. Uh, So, okay. So we wanted to do this thing where we explored this tension between what could happen in this primary going forward and, and what, as well as what has happened. So, okay. I'll have a little fun with this because we're doing this video. I I have a hat. So I'm going to, I'm going to take the person, uh, the, 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 I'm going to be the character of the, bernie bro here i'm gonna be i'm gonna be bernie bro for for this uh part and uh and uh <laughs> i'm I, and, and uh and i'm going to try to be optimistic about where things go and uh and, and rania is going to uh she doesn't have a hat uh her self is just to not have a hat so that she can not have to like later on when this all fails there won't be like images spreading around about how like you were this Bernie believer who didn't see reality. And so like your integrity and your credibility won't be attacked. But like, I put this hat on now so like people can smear my, uh, call me a partisan later on and and attack me online.
1: (laughs) Well, listen, you know, I mean, I am a Bernie partisan obviously, but I also am a cynic. And I also think I'm right on this. I I don't think Bernie can win. I don't think he can win. Uh, I don't think they I don't think he can. I don't think it's cuz if there was a fair race, he might win. But if there's not a fair race. There's a race being run by a party that has literally put all its power and energy into making sure Bernie doesn't win. And they've even said if he does win, they won't give it to him. So I just don't uh, think Bernie Sanders is going to be the nominee and the longer the more time that goes on, you talked about this on the show before where I've explained why you know, he can't get a majority of delegates. Uh, Now, I don't even know if he'll be able to get a plurality of delegates because of the momentum Joe Biden has. And again, I think we underestimate how much of the electorate on the Democratic side is happy and fine with the status quo. Not even just the status quo. They're okay with going back to Obama status quo because four years of Trump have made them nostalgic for what what was before Trump. You know what I mean? So I think we underestimate that. And I just, like, I, I just don't think, like, even with Joe Biden having dementia, it seems really difficult to break through. I think we're in a 2016 scenario again, where, you know, uh, in this case, Bernie Sanders is closer to, you know, trailing Joe Biden than he was Hillary Clinton, um, especially since they're not already counting super delegates like they were then. But I don't know if he's going to be able to catch up with him. I'm not saying everybody who supports Bernie should give up but you guys, it's time to face reality and recognize that it's very likely they're not going to let him be the nominee. So let's start having a conversation about what happens when we get to the convention. And let's also start having a conversation about how much longer are we gonna keep trying to reform the Democratic Party and fail before we realize it's lost cause? Like, since, you know, in my entire adult life, um, I just remember like, you know, every election, starting with the 2012 election to now, it's like Democratic Party does the same thing over and over again. It crushes the left. Why is the left still supporting it? Why? I understand Bernie Sanders is an opportunity that doesn't come around every often, but if it doesn't work, which I don't think it will, then what? Are we gonna keep trying to reform this party that's unreformable and clearly won't allow us to reform it because it's run by the same elites that run the Republican Party?
0: I have to take my hat off. <laughs> <laughs>
1: i your bothering him.
0: You? No, because like all of that is tremendously persuasive, but okay. So here's, oh. here's, here's, here's what I would say. Okay. So first off, if you look at the results for super Tuesday, they're not as bad as, as they were reported. Um, and, and first off, I won't go so far as to do what Michael Moore did, which on his podcast, he basically said, what if we reported the results starting with California? and worked backward, then you would have seen that Bernie Sanders was had won the biggest prize of the night, which has over 400 delegates. And he's going to have a margin that's probably about 7 to 8% over Joe Biden. So that means he's going to accumulate somewhere around 40 or 50 more delegates than Joe Biden would take from that state. And that'll help uh, close some of the margin. and You know the other thing was that uh he was competitive in states in ways that uh he wasn't when hillary clinton had run so like he did way better in texas the the way that he did in texas was far better and i also you know i went ahead and i went through all of the states here uh i compared the super tuesday that happened in 2016 and the super tuesday states for this round and you know the numbers are a little bit off because we still had Bloomberg in the race. And uh, let's just pause for a moment and celebrate that we were able to kill this Republican oligarchs campaign off. I mean, I think, like, we should take credit for a moment and just say that, like, we did Actually,
1: that. I don't know. I don't know if I felt that was a good thing. I think that because that, that just means more more for Joe Biden. Those people aren't going to support Bernie Sanders.
0: I'm sad that his vanity project ended, but we should also, I think we should be honest with ourselves. The establishment wanted to back Bloomberg over Biden and they couldn't because he he did so, he did, he, no, but he did so terribly in that first debate. And people were, people were booing him when he talked about things like starting his own business and uh, like things that should, could have, like he was trying to be a conservative in the democratic party and it failed. Um, Right. So anyways, um, Arkansas, Clinton had 66% of the vote. Biden only took 40% of that share. I don't know if you know this. So Massachusetts was about as close as it was with Clinton and Sanders. So that was on pace. The real disappointment for me, I think, is Minnesota. Because Mm -hmm. I think, and and even Matt Taibbi said this on Useful Idiots. So. I'm um, not the first person to acknowledge. I think even Katie Halper would acknowledge it too. That like that was a state where he did tremendously well. He Sanders won 60% of the vote in Minnesota in 2016, and this round, less than 30% of the vote. So something happened. They need to explore it. I think the campaign, if they could answer why he didn't do better in Minnesota, he might do better going forward. Um, then Oklahoma. I don't know why he lost Oklahoma. But that's probably a big question that they could ask. And if they answered it, they would do better going forward because he had he did very well in Oklahoma when he faced off with Clinton. But I think that had also been a caucus previously. Uh, Tennessee was closer. But again, we still had Bloomberg in the race. So that might be why Biden's number was lower, because the margin for Clinton was 66 percent to 32 percent. And this one was more 41, 24 Um hmm. Texas, again, like I said, close, like 34% versus 30. Whereas, again, this number is huge. Back in 2016, Clinton had 65% of the vote versus 33% with Sanders. So the gains that he made in Texas show strength in what they were doing with their organizers on the ground. Uh, Vermont, little disappointing. It could have been a bigger, resounding victory for Sanders. It was only 50% of the vote. There's something going on there. Of course, I skipped over Maine. Um, I'm not sure that that was a Super Tuesday state last year, last cycle. So I left it out. But again, why do you lose Maine? Bernie Sanders should be winning Maine. Um, But maybe that also, maybe we're missing something because of course, Susan Collins is the senator from Maine and she's a Republican. So maybe we're missing something about how conservative Maine is and it's not really liberal and If you think of like Portland, Maine and other areas around it that are starting to look a lot like Brooklyn, New York, those are maybe liberal areas of the state, but there's probably much more conservatism in the state than maybe we let on. I mean, Virginia, he just got crushed it was about the same margin as Hillary Clinton. But we the point was made that that's a beltway state, so he was not going to do very well, well in Virginia. Actually,
1: I was surprised. I was surprised how poorly he did in Virginia because a week before, a week prior to that, polls were showing a much different situation in Virginia. So right. I'm not sure what happened there, but anyway.
0: Okay, so here's here's what I'll say. I think that the, the optimism I have is – it hinges upon the lessons that the Bernie Sanders campaign would learn from what happened on super Tuesday. I mean, that's, that's the caveat that I have to say, if you go forward doing the same thing that you did through super Tuesday, it's not going to be effective because now we have a two-way race. What they were doing, what the Sanders campaign was doing was effective. If so many other voices remained in the race, wouldn't you agree? Like their strategy was good, but when you have a two-way race, you have to change. And so I think that like, in order to even stay in the race, even to stay competitive, you have to be much more negative towards Joe Biden. You have to, and I and I don't think it's good enough to just highlight differences. I've come around to this idea that that you have to actually treat Joe Biden as a threat, because you. I think the question has to be posed to voters: What is the threat of nominating Joe Biden as the Democratic Party's nominee? And that's not right. to and that's not to be disrespectful towards him. I know that Bernie is constantly saying this thing over the past week of, he's my good friend. He genuinely seems to like Joe Biden. He feels like Joe Biden likes him, but the people around Joe Biden do not give a fuck about Bernie Sanders. They want to crush Bernie Sanders. And maybe Joe Biden doesn't have that cutthroat way of viewing Bernie Sanders, but he certainly is part of a campaign that's going to do whatever it can to trash Bernie Sanders. And everything is about hating Bernie Sanders supporters everything is about telling us, like anybody who would vote for Bernie, that they have to you know, basically just submit to the will of the Democratic Party establishment and go along with it. That's what happened four years ago. That's what's happening in this cycle. And so I think you have to articulate the threat. And, and the best way that you can start is, you know, you can't just talk about what he did in the past. You can't just say that in the past he supported NAFTA you have to talk about like what that would mean for today. Like you have to talk about like, that means that he's going to support the same destructive free trade deals and it's going to have an impact. This isn't just something yeah. that's like a, a part of a bygone era. It has to apply to the current day and to connect it back to where we started our show as we as we start to conclude our broadcast, the coronavirus, your main strength as a campaign is supporting Medicare for all. So turn the threat of Joe Biden being the nominee into the issue. He is not mm-hmm. going to support Medicare for all and you won't be able to confront epidemics like the coronavirus and ensure people do not get sick. So that's mm-hmm. that's the way that you convert voters and move them over to you and see that you have a strength that he doesn't have and also that he has a liability because what he's going to endorse is just having the Affordable Care Act, which is what we have now He's only going to strengthen it marginally and we will still have people entirely vulnerable to getting sick from the coronavirus. I mean, I don't know if you know this quite clearly, but let's use our show to articulate it. The difference is this was going around. The differences between Biden and Sanders are that Sanders opposed all of these things while Biden supported. There's the Iraq War authorization. There's the Defense of Marriage Act. There's the Patriot Act authorization There's the Patriot Act reauthorization. There's the bankruptcy bill that allowed that that made it easier for credit card uh, companies to uh, keep people beholden to the kind of debt that they have from the credit cards. It's I think even student loans as well. Wall Street bailout. There's the normal trade relations with China permanent, making those permanent, which increase the race to the bottom for workers repealing the Glass-Steagall Act which of course we know brought us the economic collapse the um there is the border fence legislation of 2006 so again like bernie could argue that he was against building a wall or a barrier on the border whereas like biden was for it the threat is that like he may not actually reverse the trump policy of having that separation on the border, of having that kind of security that divides the two countries. The war on drugs he's been for and he's been against marijuana legalization, Biden has. So these are all issues and you can create, you can talk about all of these issues in ways that make people, I think what you have to do for voters, which Bernie has failed to do, is you can't talk about it as an opportunity. People aren't responsive to opportunities. You have to make it a negative thing about how there's a threat. Why do people respond to voting for Biden? Because we're going to stop the threat of President Donald Trump. How will people respond to uh, the the race between Sanders and Biden? The only way they're going to move over and support Sanders is if they see it as a negative to vote for Biden. I'm sorry that like we, it has to be that way when, when Sanders offers us so many positives, but the optimism that I have for no, succeed- have what
1: he has to he has to go on the attack all this crap about oh yeah. he's my friend or, again no Sanders needs to move past it if he actually wants to win and that's what makes. I mean I don't know if you want to win if you actually want to win you have to attack your opponent and portray him negatively there's no other option and I agree with everything you said but here's my question well,
0: wait you hold really on think- can I say one more thing can I say yeah. one more thing about his brand because i think that he also has to make sure that he stays on brand so i've seen this written in the media i just plucked this out of the guardian where it says by doubling down on his attacks on media and the democratic establishment he risks reinforcing the stereotype of himself as a grievance-ridden politician promoted by that same media and democratic establishment and there there's a lot of problems that i have with that statement and i won't pick i mean i don't pick it apart as much as i would if i was writing an article but i'll just say essentially that that's his brand his brand the reason why people like bernie sanders is because he would dare to oppose the democratic party establishment he is not supposed to cozy up with that establishment and he can't make nice with people because he has to worry about being accepted later in philadelphia if he would be the nominee he has to run against it He has to run against the media, which has been trying to kneecap his campaign from the beginning. And he has to doubt the sincerity of Democratic leaders every time that they speak about his campaign. He has to believe that he is under siege and that people are coming after him and trying to dismantle this campaign. And he has to show people that what's at stake is that they're going to lose the chance to improve their lives because the Democratic Party establishment is aligned against them. Now go ahead and ask a question.
1: You really think Sanders can be the nominee?
0: I think that it, I think that the window has not closed. I think that we have to Wait, see what
1: happens. Even, even if he gets a plurality of delegates. I'm not saying give up. I just, I'm asking you a genuine question. Even if he gets a plurality of delegates, he beats Joe Biden by 100 delegates, let's say, because it's going to be a close race. We now know that it's not going to be a landslide for Sanders. Um, yeah. So, so say he gets more delegates than Joe Biden. Um, then what happens? You think they're going to give him the nomination?
0: No, I'm not naive. I, uh, as, as optimistic as I am, I don't think anybody gives Bernie Sanders anything. I think you have to take it. You have to make the, you know, this is, this is maybe like not something that people can believe is possible, but in, in trying to articulate the, the possible outcome, the only way that I see Bernie Sanders winning the nomination and, and or getting the nomination on a second ballot in the Democratic National Convention, which would defy everything that we would expect about the Democratic Party, he has to create a crisis for the Democratic Party. His campaign can do that. Him and his supporters. I mean, what the representation that we have is like this is a third of the Democratic Party base, right? This is a third, and and now regardless of what Elizabeth Warren is doing, um, she is probably going. Let's let's presume she endorses Joe Biden. Let's say Elizabeth Warren endorses Joe Biden. I think but she's going to be his vice
1: president pick. I think she's going to be his VP pick.
0: Okay, let's presume that she was promised something, and that Joe Biden is not going to pick. Stacey Abrams, the black woman down in Georgia, because so far we've been thinking that that might be the case. But maybe I suppose if he's strong with black people, he doesn't need a black woman to be his vice president. So he would pick somebody else who could appeal to a different slice of the electorate. That fits into what we know about uh, this uh, Democratic Party and how they play identity politics. But then again, that doesn't quite explain why Hillary Clinton picked boring dad uh tim Kaine to be her vice president last cycle because that didn't really pick up anything i mean that okay, wasn't up but, a per-
1: but my, my question for you my question for you is okay what is what is what is the crisis he's going to create one and two if sanders doesn't win which i think it's more likely he won't not and win's not the right word if they take it from sanders which they likely will then what does Sanders do? Do you really think he's not going to coalesce behind Joe Biden, just like he did with Hillary Clinton?
0: Okay, so first off, let me say that I understand what you're saying, and I, th- I think that you're probably right, but I am going to articulate the positive side angle of how this could happen just for the sake of people who are listening to our discussion. So, so What, I, what, what I'm imagining here is that people would be able to create a crisis for the Democratic Party where they would be again, like you have to create a threat. You have to make them afraid to not award the nomination to Bernie Sanders. So I think that what people have to do, honestly, is threaten to blow up the Democratic Party. I honestly think that, like, that's the only way that people who are the base of his campaign are going to have any possibility of getting uh, the nomination. Because you we have to, you have to get to that point where you have enough delegates where you pose a threat to the order of the Democratic National Convention. And that depends on maintaining the strength and organizing. He's still raising somewhere around 35 to $50 million a month. That's a load of money to to do. He's able to buy ad buys that he couldn't buy last cycle in 2016. Um, He's, you know, we're seeing that he's resetting and wants to target the Midwestern states which have huge chunks of delegates he's let, he's he's going right where Hillary Clinton was weak in the rust belt states and he's saying that Joe Biden is going to be weak in those states as well which seems to be something that we should all be able to agree upon and accept that Joe now, Biden, Joe would Biden be weak.
1: I don't think I don't think that's necessary. I don't think that's a given that Joe Biden would be weak in fact the Joe Biden have, tends to do well in in the, with those kinds of demographics generally speaking even though he's a total phony so I don't think, I don't think it's a given. But anyways, I think, I think what you're saying is important. I guess, I just think, I don't think Sanders is going to be willing to blow up the democratic party. And even if he was, I don't think the democratic party gives a shit. If they gave a shit, they wouldn't be putting someone against Trump who has dementia. Like yeah, that's yeah. No, I... but that said, like, again, like this is kind of the dynamic we have. I'm always the cynical person. And you're no, more of the like, optimist. So I think it's good to have both voices or both perspectives. And I hope you're right. I hope I'm totally wrong and like full of shit. And I hope we can look back on this and you could even play it and be like, ha ha, Ronnie is an idiot. And I want to be an idiot here and be wrong. So I hope you're right. Uh, and I need to hear, like, I need to hear that side. But honestly, like from what you said, I just don't, I just don't, I still feel the way I felt when we started this conversation. I just don't see, I just don't see, especially now that Joe Biden is more competitive than we thought, I just don't see Sanders getting the nomination. Uh, I don't well, think that means so- you I don't want to discourage people. People should still organize for him and work their asses off to try and get him the nomination. But the point of me saying all this is that we need to be prepared for the scenario that I'm talking about. What are we going to do if that happens? That needs to be a conversation that happens now uh, because- I don't think again. Like I don't think Sanders is going to be willing to blow up the party. It doesn't mean his. It doesn't mean his supporters would be willing to do it. So that organizing needs to start as well.
0: Okay, so let me just say this. This will be the last thing that I say. So I just believe that we have enough of the primary left that just objectively, by math, you you, you can't see ground to the Democratic establishment. That's what they want. They want people to lay over and play dead. Like the best case scenario for them is that after their you know, as, as uh, Matt Taibbi referred to it, the Michael Corleone godfather type move that was made where the family like came in mafia style aligned around Joe Biden off to these other campaigns and killed them. And then now everyone's just like, Biden's our guy. We're going to stick with our guy, sort of like the mafia, like films that we see in Hollywood, that, that Biden's our guy, we're going to ride him. We don't know if he's the best candidate or not, but he's our guy and we're going to stick with him. And in order to have a strength, have a stronger hand in suppressing Bernie Sanders' campaign. And and the fact is, like, what they want is everyone to roll over and let this happen. And they know, they're, they're very smart about what they did. Like, I'm giving the people in power, these elites, a lot of credit, because I think you have to recognize what they did was hugely smart in retrospect, like at the time, I didn't believe that what they were doing with Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg was going to be effective. I actually said something to people who are my Facebook friends and people I was connected to with family. That I said, well, this might be too late. They're doing this 24 hours before Super Tuesday. I wonder if they waited too long to coalesce around Joe Biden. And no, I was wrong. And I have to admit that I was wrong in order to make sure that my analysis continues to be credible. But what all I can say to people is that there is this unknown factor that polls cannot account for, that Joe Biden's campaign cannot account for, that we cannot account for, which is the number of people who decide to canvass even though they've been told no by the Democratic establishment, the people who still give money even though they've been told no by the Democratic party establishment, the people who continue to go make calls and send texts to people and tell them to vote Bernie Sanders, even though they've been told no, people who use the power that they have on their shows, people who uh, share content, people who try to find ways to connect with people in their community to say on a very, very basic human level that Joe Biden is not going to be president of the United States, he just can't be. And the safe candidate is Bernie Sanders. And we can't account for whether those conversations are going to have any success at all, but, but what we can do is ground that understanding of that like that could that kind of thing that dynamic could change the way that things go going forward but i think i'm willing to as someone who recognizes their support i'm willing to agree with you like at the end of our debate and our and our discussion in this episode i'm willing to agree with you that bernie sanders is not going to blow up the democratic party bernie sanders is not even going to run as an independent i mean what he should do or what I thought, you know, well, I mean, when it was going to be Bloomberg versus Trump, and I thought that was a really distinct possibility. I was like, absolutely. You would have to try to mount some kind of an independent campaign. But the thing with Joe Biden, which I think the establishment is smartly doing, is they're seeing that he retains some of the like working class credentials that Bernie Sanders has as far as. So I think you are right about the Rust Belt states thing, which is that the weaknesses that Hillary Clinton have. Joe Biden makes up for. But I think that's naive because people think that he has more of a working class credibility than he really should have because he's always backed all of these policies that have led to the crushing of workers in the United States. So all I can say, again, just, just, just to end on, just put the exclamation point on what I'm saying is everyone should keep doing what they were going to do before the Democratic Party establishment aligned behind Joe Biden. And I think that, like, we should be we should look forward to the fact that there is going to be a Biden versus Bernie Sanders debate on March 15th. And they are going to have to stand on a stage with each other and discuss the issues together before an audience. And Joe Biden is going to have to be able to handle Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders will have a chance to respond to Joe Biden. We know that debates have already had a real impact on the outcomes of primaries in this race it led to Bloomberg being gone. Um, it gave Amy Klobuchar a boost before there was votes in New Hampshire. Um, and so I think that like going forward, we should, rec- it helped Pete Buttigieg probably. So like we should recognize that there is a sort of like artificialness of the debates that has helped voters decide who they are going to vote for. But to make a larger point about this primary as we, as we conclude here, one thing we have taken for granted is the extent to which people are vote blue no matter who. I think. I think that's a fair statement. I don't, do you know what I'm trying to say, Rania? Does that make sense mm-hmm. to you? Because I think that like there are many people who saw the chaos of the primary and didn't want to make a choice and we're just basically like the Democratic Party is going to tell me who to vote for. I'm going to go vote for whoever that person is. I assume that person's going to beat Donald Trump. Nobody in the media is telling me that none of like nobody in the media was saying Bernie, Amy – well, actually, they said Bernie couldn't be, beat Trump. They have said that. But they, nobody said Amy, Joe, Pete, uh, Liz, that they wouldn't be able to beat Donald Trump. So why go vote? Why not – why make the choice between those candidates? Why not just let the party give me a nominee and I can go vote for that person in the general election? And I think that shows the like passivity and maybe some of the ap- apathy of the average Democratic voter in this election.
1: Yeah. Uh, on that note, we'll continue this conversation. <laughs> um, so Kevin, we'll be back next week. Right. I don't know if it'll be video or not.
0: Yeah, we'll decide, but I won't wear this stupid okay. hat next time.
1: <laughs> I kind of like it. It should just be your new, your new hat that you always do.
0: We put the hat on when we are trying to give Bernie bros mm-hmm. hope. And then when I just feel like it's impossible, I'll just take it off and throw it in the middle of the broadcast. You put on a MAGA just, hat.
1: You put on a MAGA hat.
0: I'll put on a MAGA <laughs> do, I don't, I don't
1: hat.
0: I don't have a Biden hat. I'll put on a nightgown for my dementia.
1: On that note, thank you everyone so much for listening, and we will be back next week.
0: Once again, thank you for listening to the Unauthorized Disclosure Weekly podcast. For those patrons out there, we do love your monthly support. Thank you to everyone. For those of you who may have stumbled on this podcast, I encourage you to go to patreon.com slash unauthorizeddisclosure, patreon.com slash unauthorizeddisclosure. Sign up there. Become a patron today. You'll get access to our video broadcasts and also any additional exclusive content that we may post, as we tend to do month to month. So go to patreon.com slash unauthorizeddisclosure, patreon.com slash unauthorizeddisclosure and become a patron today.